The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, well, let's um, go ahead and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. I told Ariel earlier, I said, you know, for... For half of my life, I've been encouraging people to come out on Wednesday nights, and this is this is the first time where I've ever said, let's try to limit the the numbers, and some of you can stay home. So uh, strange times that we're living in, for sure. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, I'd like us to uh, start reading at um, where we left off last week, which is... Uh, verse 13. Therefore, let the one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the spirit and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the spirit only... How will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks since he does not know what you're saying? For you're giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. In the law it is written, by men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So then, tongues are a sign, not to those who believe, but to To unbelievers, but prophecy is a sign not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Therefore, if the whole church assembles together and all speak in tongues, and an ungifted man or unbelievers enter, will they not say that you're mad? But if all prophesy and an unbeliever or an ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed, and so he will fall on his face and worship God declaring that God is certainly among you. So we saw um, last week that, or week before, whenever it was, that as Paul enters into this discussion on the uh, gifts of tongues and prophecy, he is concerned that, that the Corinthians follow the more excellent way. And the more excellent way is the way of love, and the way of love is the way of edification for the people of God. So as he enters into chapter 14, he, he in a sense, transitions from that uh, classic chapter, chapter 13 on love, into this this discussion, and he says, pursue love, yet earnestly desire the spiritual things, that is, the things of the Spirit, but especially that you may prophesy. And so what Paul's going to do is he's going to demonstrate that prophecy in the body, that is in the assembly, 
is to be preferred over tongues. And the reason prophecy, and I'll I'll say this probably another 20 times, the reason prophecy is to be uh, preferred over tongues is because prophecy is intelligible and intelligibility is required for edification and it is love that seeks to edify. And so this is, this is Paul's logic on the use of the gifts. And so in verses 2 to 4, he gives this, um, uh, the reason for the preference. It's actually uh, quite telling. Uh, when a person is uh, speaking in tongues, he's actually, um, in, in a sense, just edifying himself. Um, he is speaking mysteries to God in his spirit, uh, but people don't understand what he's saying. But the one who prophesies speaks intelligible words, words that that are understood by the mind, words that actually comfort, exhort, and console. And so because of that, verse 5, the one who prophesies has functionally the greater gift over the one who speaks in tongues. Now, that actually shouldn't be a surprise to us because when Paul actually gave the list back in chapter 12 and then at the end of chapter 12, he mentions tongues last. And of course, this is the gift that the Corinthians loved. It was the showboat gift, and they loved to put it on display. And Paul's actually saying that the, the, the value of it in the assembly uh, is 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 actually marginal because all you're doing, if there's no interpreter, is just speaking into the air, right? And so he makes the point, though, that if it's interpreted, then the church receives edification. So, following the logic, what is it about the interpretation of of a tongue that actually makes it? Um, Uh, unto edification, and the answer is, at that point, it becomes intelligible. It becomes understandable. So when the interpretation is given, then the people understand what is being said, and the understanding is what leads to their edification. And so, when tongues are interpreted, in a sense, they function in a way that's similar to prophecy, all right? And then that brought us to uh, the next major section, which was the necessity of intelligibility illustrated. So verses 6 through 19, and uh, and Paul's point in verse 6 is worth reading again. But now, brethren, if I come to you speaking in tongues, and I, I mentioned last week, and I think that there's there's probably good reason to assume this, Paul was committed not to come to them speaking in tongues. Paul was committed to giving them intelligible teaching, instruction. The the supercharged Corinthians, the super spiritualized Corinthians, really thought that that probably was, was poor form on Paul's part, right? I mean, look at us, you know, we, we go on and on in tongues and we speak in tongues all the time and Paul comes to us and, uh, and he's speaking Greek. How boring is that? And so Paul's whole point in verse 6 is, I, if I came speaking to you in tongues, I wouldn't profit you 
But if I come bringing you a revelation or knowledge, prophecy or teaching, I said there's sort of a cross um, uh, structure there. Um, Revelation comes through prophecy. Knowledge comes through teaching. That's where the edification is, right? And so, by the way, uh, this this has tremendous relevance, not just for um, uh, the charismatic issue, But stop and think about nearly a thousand years of church history where the average person did not speak Latin and yet everything in the church was done in Latin. By the way, up until around the time I was born. So completely, actually completely ignoring the principle of intelligibility, right? And so you'd have these poor Roman Catholics that go and just knew, knew, you know, what sounded like hocus pocus amokamus, and that was all that they were hearing. They didn't understand. And so Paul says the principle of profiting others demands that I actually give you something that you can understand. Then he gives a couple of illustrations, of course. And the point of both illustrations is simple, and that is, unless you give a clear word, verses 7 to 9, unless you give a clear word, nobody's going to know what you're talking about. Right? It's just the same as if you're, just, uh, if you're not playing uh, uh, notes that can be distinguished, nobody will know what you're playing. If nobody actually recognizes what you're doing with the bugle, they won't know whether it's dinner time or whether the enemy's coming. And this is, this is the very picture of the person that actually insists on speaking in tongues in the assembly. And then Paul's going to talk verses 10 to 12, which we saw last week that languages have meaning, right? There's lots of different languages, and there's not a single one of them that actually is meaningless. Uh, No matter what language you speak, you put syllables together, you put morphemes together. Those morphemes create words. Those words have semantic relevance. That semantic relevance gets put together in a sentence, and then you begin to have a discourse, and that discourse is understandable as long as you can understand the language. And so this is Paul's point. So then that brings us to uh, uh, where we're at tonight. So therefore, verse 13, let one who speaks in a tongue pray that he may interpret. So if, if Paul's saying, so if you have the gift of tongues, you should pray that God gives you the gift of interpretation. Now, what's, what's interesting is notice what Paul doesn't say. Paul doesn't say, if you have a tongue, pray that it may be interpreted. Okay? Nor does he say, pray that someone with the gift of interpretation may be present. He says, if you have a tongue, pray that you may interpret. Now, commentators kind of go around about uh, why he would say this, and, and of course it's not altogether clear, but, it, but, but what is clear is he's saying, if you have the gift, pray that God gives you the additional gift, so both gifts in one person. Now, I, I think, 
this is just a guess on my part, I think that the reason would be uh, logistical. Okay? So let's just pretend for a minute that I have the gift of tongues, and I know I have the gift of tongues. And I'm going to come into the, the assembly, and so what am I not going to do if I don't know the interpretation? I'm not going to speak in tongues. But if I know the interpretation, then it would be for edification, and then it could be done. All right? So Paul says, if you have, if you have tongues, uh, pray that you may interpret. Same person, both gifts. What he's doing really is he's amplifying uh, verse 12, right? And that is, uh, seek to abound for the edification of the church. So if you're going to insist on this gift, then you're going to want to insist on this gift, that is interpretation, so that you in turn can edify those who gather. And then Paul says, verse 14, for if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. Now, I think that what, I think that what Paul's doing is I think he's using himself as an example so that he's not quite so um, critical or confrontational with, with them. Because he could have said, if you pray in a tongue, your mind is unfruitful, right? But he uses himself, I think, to kind of soften uh, the point that he's making. And, and, and here's the point. My spirit is praying, but my mind is unfruitful. So notice there is a, uh, there's a distinction that's being made between the spirit and the mind. Okay. Now, in Greek thought, it was very common. The highest part of a person, what do you think? What was the highest, the highest faculty of a person? The highest part of his being? It's actually the spirit. So no, it's the 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 spirit of a man in grief. So what Paul's saying here, he's not denying that you have a spirit, right? You have you have an inner man, right? Um, but really, Paul, in a sense, is elevating the role of the mind. Okay? So he says, so if I'm praying in a tongue, my my spirit's praying, which means that he's praying by the power of the Spirit indwelling him. And, he, and this, by the way, is one of the uh, a few times where Paul talks about my spirit as opposed to the Holy Spirit. And so here he is, he's praying, but his, his spirit's praying, but his mind doesn't know what he's, what he's saying, right? So his mind is unfruitful. And I know that this is, this is foreign to some of us and to others. Uh, it, it's not. Um, but here, here's Paul's point, verse um, 15. What's the outcome then? So if I'm praying in the Spirit, i.e., I'm praying in tongues, and my mind's unfruitful, what then? What? The answer is, well, I, I will pray with my Spirit, and I will pray with my mind also. 
Paul's answer is, look, you don't have to choose one or the other. You, you do both. And so Paul's desired outcome for those gifts is verse 15. I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the mind also. Now, he talks about singing and praying with the spirit. And we'll talk about that uh, when we sort of do a, a recap of what tongues and prophecy is all about. Okay, because that's sort of interesting, right? I've I don't really know that I've ever sung with my spirit. Um, I'm assuming that he's still talking about singing in tongues. In context, that's what it seems to be referring to. And so um, I think that when he says uh, this in verse 15, I think that what he's basically doing is um, what I do in the spirit do privately what I do with the mind I do in the context of the church because with the mind whether it's me singing or me praying or 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 giving a message that's the intelligibility part the other part is unintelligible and so if it's going to be unintelligible it's not going to be in the assembly it's going to be in private right now that brings us to Uh, what ends up being really sort of a fascinating part of the passage. So notice verse 16. So so otherwise, so if if you're going to insist on praying in the Spirit, singing in the Spirit, giving tongues and all of this, he says, uh, if, if if you're going to do that, so otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit, okay? So just take the word bless to be a word that encompasses um, praising, praying, singing, okay? So if I'm doing all of this in the Spirit, okay, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks? Since he does not know what you're saying. Verse 16 actually is, is where Paul begins to really lay down uh, the 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 gauntlet of intelligibility here. So he says, so if you are um, just blessing God and just just think of the person just going on and on and on and on in tongues. And Paul says, and there comes in uh, the ungifted. We'll talk about who that might be in a minute. So the ungifted comes into his place and all he hears is blah, 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 blah. Then how in the world is he supposed to be able to give the amen to your giving of thanks since he doesn't have a clue what you just said? Now, notice New American Standard says the place of the ungifted, okay? Now, I'm going to tell you what the Greek word is, but don't make too much of it. It's idiotes, okay? Now, Paul is not saying that there were special seats for idiots, okay? There's quite a large debate over who is he talking about here. So the the idiotes is the person who is the unlearned person, 
the ignorant person and not, not in a disparaging way. And so some people, some people have said that the, that the idiotes here in this verse is the same as the person mentioned in verse 23 because the word is used again there, um, ungifted men, all right? Now, uh, it could be the, uh, the same person, but that ends up being somewhat irrelevant because it still doesn't necessarily help us, okay? It could be, and this, this was um, a view of, of, of a number of the church fathers, and that is that, that the person that Paul's talking about here is, is actually a person who would have been considered um, an inquirer, okay? A person who had shown interest in the Christian faith, and they've come into a Christian assembly to learn more about the gospel. And so ungifted would better be understood as an inquirer, a person who has yet to be baptized, all right? Um, It could be also that the reference is uh, to um, what we would call a God-fearer, okay? So have you ever been reading the book of Acts? You realize that there's, you have Jews and Gentiles, but among the Gentiles, you have Gentiles who actually go to synagogue, listen to Torah. They've not been, uh, they've not been circumcised, but they, they believe in the God of Israel. The, that category would be God-fearer, okay? So Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 was a God-fearer, okay? And so it's basically a person who, they're not like a, a pagan Gentile, they are um, a Gentile who is uh, showing interest in, in the true God. Okay? Uh, Christian Standard Bible just says the uninformed. Okay? And so uh, NAS, ungifted. And so there's a, there's a big debate. Is, is Paul talking about, let's say, a Christian who's without the Spirit? And the answer to that is, No, because there's no such thing as a Christian without the Spirit, all right? Um, Is he talking about somebody who's void of the gift of interpretation? Well, the answer to that is probably yes. So the Net Bible says the one without the gift, that is the gift of interpretation. Um, I, I think that when we try to maybe define the unlearned or ungifted person too specifically, we end up kind of missing something. And uh, so Gordon Fee says, the person in view here is just the one who doesn't have the ability to comprehend the tongue speaker. Okay. So that could, be, um, that could be a believer, that could be an unbeliever, that could be an inquirer, that could be a God-fearer. It's just not specified. And so Paul simply, his point is simply this, if you're speaking in tongues and there's somebody that's in a that, that place, and they don't know what you're talking about, one thing is absolutely certain. They can't give the amen to what you've just said. Okay. Now, what does Paul mean, give the amen? So I've, over the years, we've, in fact, I think I preached an entire sermon on saying amen, right? Um, when you say amen, what, what comes to your mind? What do you think you're doing, Okay. Some say it more than others. How many have ever said amen out loud in church? So a few of you, right? Some of you do it all the time, right? 
In fact, when I go preach in faraway places, I'll have people that say, you know, I listen on sermon audio all the time. Who's that guy that always says amen? Really loud. Oh, I have no idea. Anyway. <laughs> and then they asked me about the lady that laughs really loud, but we won't <laughs> say who that is. So when you say amen, you're making a statement of agreement, right? So at the end of prayer, right, I would say the biblical, not just from this text, from, but from about a half dozen other texts, the biblical response of the people of God is to give a verbal amen after prayer, right? Why is that? Because the person praying, so, so even tonight with just a handful of us, some of you stood up to pray. As you stood to pray, what you were doing is you were praying as the mouthpiece of the people who are assembled here. So if, if Charlie stands up and he is praying, he's praying on my behalf and yours. He is the mouthpiece at that, at that point. And so when he finishes his prayer for me to actually enter into that prayer, I give my amen, right? I'm saying that prayer represents my prayer I agree with it, amen, right? So saying amen verbally is absolutely biblical. Sometimes in the course of preaching, somebody will say, uh, the preacher will say something and somebody will say amen. That means um, that's true. I confirm that. I, I believe that, right? It is. So what is absolutely necessary for you to be able to say, I agree with that? Well, you have to know what he said. So the person that's just rambling on in tongues, how is the ungifted person, whoever he may be, supposed to say, amen, I agree with that? They can't. And so this is Paul's point. And so then he says, um, he says, you're giving thanks well enough. So you're happy enough about it, right? But the other person's not edified. And so this ungifted person is standing there. He doesn't know what in the Sam Hill is going on. And so we can't say the amen. And he's scratching his head. And it's like Paul's saying, listen, you're happy enough to be blissed out in your little, um, uh, you know, um, self-edifying party. But the other guy just stands there and he's thinking, what are you saying? And then Paul says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than all of you. Now, it's important to understand why Paul says this at this point. Okay, Um, A lot of times what happens when people are dealing with 1 Corinthians 14 is they sort of cherry pick certain verses from the chapter to sort of build their case. And so... Well, Paul says, I wish you all spoke in tongues, and I speak in tongues more than all of you, as if that was some just sort of blanket endorsement for speaking in tongues nonstop or something. Paul's point of saying, I speak in tongues more than all of you, first of all, could be a little bit of hyperbole, but I think that what Paul's doing is he's simply saying, listen, I'm not dismissing tongues, 
just as sure as he uses his, an example of, I pray with my spirit and I pray with my mind. I'd rather pray with my mind if I'm with you, that kind of thing. He's saying here, li- listen, I'm not telling you tongues are bad. I'm not telling you to stop. I'm not telling you, I'm not dismissing the value of the gift. In fact, Gordon Fee, who I mentioned, is a classic Pentecostal, Assembly of God theologian. He said, this is so good, really. He says, his concern throughout has been with uninterpreted tongues in the assembly because what is said cannot edify the church. With this sentence, I speak in tongues more than all of you, he outmaneuvers the Corinthians altogether. He herewith affirms their gift in the strongest of terms by saying he does it more than all of them, but he does so in order to reorder their own thinking about what should be happening in their gathering for worship. And so verse 19 is sort of the, the crux of the argument. He says, however, so I speak in tongues more than all of you. Okay? However, in the church, in the ecclesia, in the assembly of God's people, I desire to speak five intelligible words to you rather than 10,000 in a tongue. Now now that, by the way, is also, uh, in a sense, um, hyperbole. But Paul's making the point. If I'm with you, my desire is not to edify myself, but to edify you. And if I'm going to do that, I need to actually speak intelligible, comprehensible words to you. So, intelligibility is what builds up the body, right? And the purpose is not to put your gift on display and have everybody go, wow, listen to that, that's really awesome, but it is to edify. So in your notes, I put this uh, this quote from Tom Schreiner. This is this is really good. So I included the whole the whole thing for you. He says we see from this text that the ex- uh, that spiritual experience is not self authenticating. Okay? One cannot defend a spiritual practice in church simply because we find it enthralling or exciting. So in other words, just because you can do it or just because you've experienced it doesn't mean that authenticates it for use in the church. He says another way to put it is that spiritual maturity is not self-absorbed. The real mark of spiritual growth is concern for others, such that believers should pursue what will edify others. The emphasis on the mind and understanding is remarkable. According to Paul, edification comes with instruction and via the mind. When the church is gathered then, attention must be given not just to form but especially to content. Form without content, experience without understanding, does not build others up. 
Paul prefers prophecy and teaching since both of these gifts communicate truth. Growth in the church derives from truth. Thus, the church must strive to hear the truth when assembled. Absolutely, absolutely crucial. I remember as a, as a teenager, um, I, I mentioned uh, my friend Mark and I, we would go to places not to, not to hear the truth, not to hear the word, not to hear good preaching or Bible teaching. We would go wherever we thought we would have the best experience. And whether that experience was, was uh, falling over, okay? whether that experience was um, really moving, moving uh, music, we went for the experience instead of going for the truth. And I want to tell you that what happens when, when a person is, is driven by, an exp- by experience, okay, you, you end up experiencing the laws of diminishing returns. When God impacts us with the truth, is it experiential? Absolutely. Absolutely. Is, um, is conviction of sin through the preaching of the truth experiential? Well, yeah, if you don't experience it, then you're not actually not being convicted, right? Conviction is an experience, but that comes through the truth. Um, being, uh, being enlightened and, and, and taught something, given an insight to where you go, oh, I've never thought about that before. That, that really encourages me, right? Is that experiential? And the answer is, of course it is, right? Um, there, is there is a sense where, um, where, where even the preaching of the word is, is experiential, but here's, here's the way that Jonathan Edwards put it. He says, I always seek to raise the affections of my hearers as high as possible, given that I only move them with the truth. That's why, for Edwards and our Puritan forefathers and others, the the combination of light and heat was absolutely uh, non-negotiable. Heat without light is nothing but emotional fervor, which doesn't do anything. Right? Just, being stirred up just for the sake of being stirred up doesn't accomplish anything. Getting a spiritual buzz for the sake of a spiritual buzz doesn't actually sanctify you. What sanctifies you, what helps you grow, what, what actually puts, um, puts some, in prophetic language, marrow and fatness into your bones is the truth of God. And so that's what we should be, what we should be after. Now, notice... I am absolutely 
utterly unwilling to divorce light from heat. Sitting in chapel one day in seminary, and um, Charlie, you remember the, um, I won't say his name, I think he's gone on to be with the Lord, but he was a local evangelist who had graduated from the seminary, and he'd come and preach at the seminary and hold revival meetings in um, local churches and actually throughout the Northwest. And um, we're sitting there, and I'm sitting next to a, a guy that wasn't Charlie, and this guy's preaching, and he is just, I mean, he is just working himself up into a lather, okay? I mean, he was he was getting frothy, and the guy sitting next to me, elbows me and he says, all heat, no light. (laughs) Absolutely, right? So what does that do? Well, the answer is absolutely nothing. Um, On the other hand, uh, all light and no heat, okay? Now, if you had to take your choice, you'd take all light and no heat, right? But why have to take a choice when the Bible always brings these things together, right? So for Paul, the whole idea of what do you come to church for? Well, there's lots of reasons why we gather together, but one of those primary, in a sense central, sort of a hub reason is to hear the truth of God preached in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what should draw us. That's what should draw us. I said this before, when when the people of God are satisfied with the word of God, then the preaching of that word is their primary diet with which they are satisfied. If you preach the word in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort, right? You do that there are no laws of diminishing returns because your soul is satisfied in Christ and in his word. And whether it's comfort and consolation or whether it's conviction, I will tell you, over the years, I think I probably have given thanks to God more often for conviction than I have for comfort and consolation. And that may be just because I, you know, being raised Catholic, you're always guilty. So, you know, maybe I gravitate towards that. But the fact is, is that I'm thankful whenever, whenever I sense the fact that God has spoken to me through his word. And so this is Paul's whole point. It's about the truth. It's about what you understand. It's about what comes to the mind, right? So Martin Lloyd-Jones by the way, if you, if, you're, if you only read one Martin Lloyd-Jones book in your whole life, read his book on spiritual depression. Okay? To me, that, is the, that, that was the best thing that Martin Lloyd-Jones ever wrote. And they were sermons, but they are so, they are so powerful. But Lloyd-Jones makes a comment in there, in that, in that book, Spiritual Depression. And he says, he says, and of course, you know, he was a doctor. He was a medical doctor, got converted. He's a very intellectual person. He makes the comment, he says, I've, I've always seen it as my 
my primary objective in, in the ministry of the word and teaching the word of God to, to appeal to the mind. Okay? To appeal to the mind. And of course, if you've ever heard him preach, you know that, that the content was, was rigorous. It was, it was Bible exposition, but you had to follow because, because as one person put it, Lloyd-Jones' ministry was logic on fire. Okay. Logic on fire. But in that passage where he talks about, I always sought to be a one who addressed the mind, to minister to the mind, to feed the mind. He also then turns around and he says, but you can never ignore the emotions. In fact, when we ignore the emotions, we do it to our peril. But how do you touch the emotions? Through the mind. Through the mind. Light and heat. So that brings us then to verses 20 to 25. And we might be able to do this in the time we have left. So 20 to 25 is one of these paragraphs that uh, the significance of it can't be overstated. Now, uh, when I say that, what I mean is that it is this paragraph that deals with the function of and purpose of tongues in a biblical theological context. By the way, the reason that this paragraph is, ends up being so important is because it actually deals with questions that are rarely asked by the advocates of tongues. Uh, for instance, why speak in tongues? Now, Paul's not going to be exhaustive and give us every possible answer, but what he does is he gives us an answer that's rooted in the Old Testament. Why why are there tongues to begin with? And what was their purpose? I, I think that these actually end up being incredibly important questions. A lot of times in terms of uh, dealing with with people from a from a, a charismatic or Pentecostal background, a lot of times there there's no biblical rationale for why tongue speaking is is practiced. So, for instance, if you were to ask maybe like the typical Pentecostal, why does God give tongues? The answer would be as evidence of of the baptism in the Spirit. Okay, well that still doesn't answer the question why tongues. Why not, by the way, were there other signs of being baptized in the Spirit on the day of Pentecost? Yes? Speaking in tongues, but there were two other signs. Flames of, tongue, uh, flames of fire, tongues of fire resting on them, and a mighty rushing wind. We're not there yet. That's not the sign. I'm talking about the evidence that they've been baptized in the Spirit. We're speaking in tongues, but also the mighty rushing wind, demonstrating the presence of the Spirit and the tongues of fire resting on them. Okay? So why not say um, tongues of fire resting on your head is the sign that you've been baptized in the Spirit? 
why not say, um, standing in the wind tunnel out in the middle of the Carson Valley is the sign of being baptized in the Holy Spirit? Uh, why, why pick on tongues, right? This paragraph actually gives us an answer. Um, now, just as sure as you can't overestimate the importance of it, the difficulty of it is hard to exaggerate as well. It is incredibly challenging. In fact, how many of you have read this passage and you conclude tentatively, never saying out loud, it seems to me like Paul's contradicting himself? Did you see it? Let's just look at it again. Let's bypass um, uh, 20 and 21 for now. So then tongues are for a sign. Not to those who, what's it say? Believe. But to unbelievers. So, verse 22, tongues are a sign for who? Unbelievers. Okay. Then, but prophecy, and by the way, notice, is for a sign is in italics, but prophecy is not to unbelievers, but to those who believe. Okay, so 22, tongues are for unbelievers, prophecies for believers. Okay, therefore, if the whole church assembled together and all speak in tongues and ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say you are mad? Now, did Paul not just say that tongues are a sign for unbelievers? Okay. And now he's saying, if an unbeliever comes in and hears you speaking in tongues, he's going to think you're crazy. But if all prophesy, an unbeliever or ungifted man enters, he's convicted by all, called to account by God, etc. So guess what? Then he turns around and says, so prophecy actually can be really beneficial for who? An unbeliever. So you read this and you're kind of like, okay, well, what is, what is Paul saying? So the difficulty of the passage, the importance of it is, is uh, hard to exaggerate, but the difficulty of it is also um, very, very, very challenging. So let's take this up and see if we can make some sense of it. So first of all, the command is the most straightforward part of the whole paragraph. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking, yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. What's the significance of verse 20? What what is Paul applying this to? He's applying it to the way they think about tongues. Doesn't that actually make the most sense in context? When he says... Do not be children in your understanding. Understanding of what? Of tongues and prophecy. So what's the implication? Corinthians, you have been somewhat childish in your understanding. You have viewed, so you you can think of it this way. Paul's saying, without saying it so directly or harshly, You've been infantile in your thinking and infantile and immature in your conduct and use of the gift. Remember, 1 Corinthians 14 is corrective of the Corinthian abuse of tongues. So don't be children in your understanding. You think that the super spiritual guy that gets up and just 
you know, just babbles on in, in tongues, you think that that's real spirituality? That's actually childish thinking. You think that's the mark of, of, of maturity and super spirituality? That's actually thinking that way is childish. Now, Paul throws in, but in evil be babes, because I think he wants to qualify. There are times where being a babe is good, and that is it's good to be innocent, inexperienced, or ignorant, and that's in the realm of evil, (laughs) right? I mean, when you raise your kids, what do you want them to be? You want them to be ignorant in the realm of evil as long as possible. And then, of course, your heart gets broken the first time that you realize that they're not nearly as innocent and ignorant in the realm of evil. Um, And so Paul says, listen, in the realm of evil, yeah, be babes, be be infants, but in your understanding, be mature. In other words, uh, verse 20 is like he's saying to the Corinthians, it's time for you to grow up. It's time for you to actually um, be mature in the way that you view and use these gifts. Because gifts plus immaturity and ignorance uh, actually just result in what? Just proud carnal displays that amount to nothing. But gifts plus maturity and understanding equals edification and growth in the body. Now what Paul's going to do is he's going to give a little lesson on maturity in understanding tongues. Okay? So yeah, I, want you to, I want you to be clear on this. I want you to see it. What Paul is about to do is he's about to give a little lesson on a mature understanding of tongues. Okay? Does that make sense? You have a childish understanding of tongues. You have a mature understanding of tongues. Childish understanding of tongues is what? Carnal, self-display, self-gratification, self-edification. Mature understanding of tongues, understanding the function of it and how it should be used. Okay? It's that simple. So what he does is he gives us Old Testament background, verse 21. So in the law it is written... By men of strange tongues and by the lips of strangers, I'll speak to this people. And even so, they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Now, where is that from? Isaiah chapter 28, verse 11, which, by the way, we don't think of. So when Paul says law, he's just talking about the entire Old Testament. And so uh, what's the connection? Well, speaking in a foreign language is not new. Okay. Now I'm going to try to do the impossible and explain to you why he uses Isaiah 28. I'm going to try to do it really fast. So, in Deuteronomy 28 to 30, okay, Moses gives a list of covenant curses. All right? right? So you remember, this is actually very simple covenant structure. You obey, enter the land, God will bless you. You disobey, you rebel, God will actually bring all of these covenant curses on you, covenant blessing, covenant curse, bring all these covenant curses on you, and the ultimate one is you'll be exiled from the land. Okay? 
So that's, that's the structure. Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28 to 30, covenant blessing, covenant curse, okay? One of those covenant curses in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 28, is that they would actually hear people speaking in foreign languages. And why was that a covenant curse? Because it meant you were either being invaded or exiled. Okay? So the covenant curse against Israel was hearing foreigners speaking language they didn't understand as an act of judgment from God. Okay? Right? So by the way, that reference is Deuteronomy 28, 49. You can read the whole thing. So then, so jump ahead to Isaiah 28. Isaiah 28 is about... Um, God, the, the Assyrians are about to come in. And guess what? When the Assyrians came in and invaded the northern kingdom, guess what the Israelites would hear? They would hear foreign languages that they did not understand. That would be the act of God's judgment. And so, in that whole uh, section in Isaiah 28, Isaiah is actually... Um, the Israelites, especially the rulers of Israel, were mocking Isaiah's ministry, okay? Basically ridiculing his um, childish gibberish. His preaching is like childish gibberish. Isaiah retorts that their mockery of him, pay attention carefully, is because of their own drunkenness. So they're making fun of Isaiah. In fact, let me read exactly how they made fun of him. Tsar la tsar, tsar la tsar, kar la kar, kar la kar, za'ir sha'am, za'ir sha'am. It's just gibberish. They say, that's what Isaiah sounds like. And Isaiah's response is, no, that's what you sound like in your... Drunkenness. Then Isaiah tells them that when you have rejected the intelligible word of God, the next word from God you will hear will be a word of judgment in a foreign language. You tracking with me? So in other words, if they refuse Isaiah with their own stammering and drunken babbling, then God will speak to them and he will speak to them in judgment. And what will that sound like? A language that they do not understand. Now, has God, just track with me for, if you will, has God ever caused a confusion of language so that it was unintelligible as an act of judgment. Genesis chapter 11, Tower of Babel. What did God do as an act of judgment? Create a confusion among the languages so they couldn't understand each other. Now, so you've got this covenant curse, foreign language, sign of God's judgment. That's how God's going to speak his word to you. So then fast forward to the day of Pentecost, okay? So Pentecost is 
is full of Jews from the diaspora. So they, in a sense, represent the table of nations. Okay? There's, there's a reason why Luke goes into all of these details about where they were from. It's almost like a, a Jewish table of nations. They're all there. So on the day of Pentecost, what happens? The, Holy, when the day of Pentecost had fully come. That has been completed. The, the, there was a mighty rushing wind. Tongues of fire rested on each one. Presumably the 120 in the upper room. And they began speaking in foreign languages. Now we know beyond all doubt that the tongues in Acts 2 are foreign languages because the people that are gathered there from the nations are hearing them speak of what? The the, um, wonderful works of God in their own tongue. Those that were speaking in tongues didn't have a clue what they were saying, but those who could understand understood very well. But there was also another group on that day at Pentecost who ridiculed what was happening. And what did they say? They were drunk. Mm. Pay attention to little connections. Drunkenness in Isaiah chapter 28. The charge of drunkenness. I love Peter's answer. He doesn't say, drunk, are you kidding? We're Baptists. We don't drink. He says, it's only nine in the morning. (laughs) Now, what was the significance of what was happening at Pentecost? The significance was this. For those who were saved that day, Babel had been reversed, and they heard the salvation of God. For those who mocked, those tongues, just like in ancient Israel, those tongues were a sign of judgment upon them. In other words, making mockery of the foreign tongues was the judgment of God. They couldn't understand the mighty deeds of God. So, okay, so I know that was really fast, but you kind of see how that, those things fit together, all right? So, when Paul says, tongues are a sign not to believers, but to unbelievers, how is that so? Well, here's the thing. We have to define sign. All of the problem goes away if you understand it as sign of judgment. Not a sign that elicits belief, but a sign of judgment. So just as foreign tongues were a sign against unbelieving Israel, so tongues spoken are a sign of judgment against unbelievers. I'll tell you why in a second. So just as tongues, um, uh, the tongues at Babel were a sign of judgment, and on Pentecost, unintelligible speech brought judgment against unbelievers. In a sense, what Paul's saying is, this is what you're doing. When everybody gets up and starts speaking in tongues, foreign languages, 
This is a sign of judgment against unbelievers because unbelievers need to be able to hear the gospel and they're thinking that you're crazy and as a result, they're leaving. They are concluding that you are all mad. And so the Corinthians' unbridled expression of tongues was bringing judgment on those they were driving away. prophecies for believers encourages exhorts consoles intelligible speech that edifies verse 23 there's this chaotic scene so paul puts it like this therefore if the whole church assembles together and everybody's speaking in tongues this is hyperbole again everybody's speaking in tongues and an ungifted, ungifted men or unbelievers enter, will they not say, you are mad? This is why tongues in the assembly is a sign of judgment against unbelievers. You're driving them away. You are, in a sense, pronouncing judgment upon them, and they, because they cannot understand the message. Let me just, let me give you an illustration. Um, Let's say, um, let's say we did something really weird at our church, okay? Um, I don't know. Think of something really weird. Um, Oh, okay. Oh, great, 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 great. Yeah, let's say, I like that because I like yodeling. I can't do it, but let's say at a certain point in the service, everybody started yodeling, all right? And the unbeliever comes in, and he concludes, huh, Jimmy Rogers fans. No, that's not what he concludes. He says, these people are nuts, right? And he leaves, never to step foot in another church again lest he be subject to more yodeling. Okay? Your yodeling is now a sign of judgment against that person because they've left. You've driven them away. They think you're crazy. And so what you think is, is actually so good actually is just a sign of judgment. You're not helping anybody. You're bringing judgment on them just like the foreign tongues in the Old Testament was a sign of judgment upon Israel. Now, Paul then says, verses 24 and 25, but if everyone, so we'll just we'll translate it like this. If everyone is speaking the word of God intelligibly, again, hyperbole, everybody's doing this. Notice what happens. And the unbeliever or the ungifted comes in. And they hear what they can understand. It doesn't mean they understand every single word. Right? If, if you're preaching to an unbeliever and you use the word propitiation, the chances are they're not going to understand that. But guess what? The message is intelligible. The message makes sense. You're a sinner God is just. Jesus is a savior. Believe in Christ. That, that intelligible word comes to 
either the ungifted, whoever that person may be, or the unbeliever. And guess what happens? That intelligible word brings conviction. It exposes sin. You, 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 you can't have your sin exposed through yodeling. You can't have your sin exposed through what, that which you do not understand. They're convicted by all. They're called to account by all. By the way, this, is, this is, it ends up being the point, right, where there's a sense of conviction of sin, and then I'm called to account. I'm going to have to give an answer to the God with whom I have to do, and the secrets of his heart are disclosed. Have you ever been sitting there in church Uh, maybe this is just me, and you feel as if the preacher is preaching only to you. Everybody could leave, and, and, and that would be perfectly apt because you feel like you're the only one in the room, and the word of God is coming, and it's coming in a way that is targeted where you're thinking to yourself, that guy's reading my mail. This is what the word of God does. This is what the supernatural proclamation of God does, God's word. And so the secrets of his heart are disclosed. Remember years and years and years ago, I started reading um, uh, John Owen's Sin and Temptation with this guy. And he comes in one day and he throws it on the table and he says, I'm not going to read this anymore. He says, that guy reads my mail. Like, well, that's interesting. He died like 400 years ago. He reads my mail. That's what the Spirit of God does. But guess what? He does it through that which is understood, that which is intelligible. And so, whereas tongues, blah, 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 they're all crazy. I'm out of here. What happens when they prophesy and speak to the heart? What happens? He falls on his face and says, God is certainly among you. you, Which response do you want from the unbeliever? You're crazy. I'm out of here. Or the God of heaven has dealt with my soul and he's present in this place and I know it. See, that is really, that is the wonderful thing about the ministry of the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. It 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 is this reality that you come away absolutely convinced God has dealt with my soul. God is in this place. I remember the first time I ever went to a Protestant church. It was an Assemblies of God church, no joke. It's what Capital Christian Center in Sacramento when it used to be on Howe Avenue about 100 years ago. And there was stuff that was going on Thankfully, everybody didn't just stand up and just jabber in tongues. But the pastor preached. He preached on the rich man and Lazarus from Luke 16. And he preached it powerfully. And my mom, who was already converted, we walk out and she says, what did you think? I said, God was in that place. God was in that place. 
Now, I think I added, just like he is in the Catholic Church, but that was, uh, God would bring me out of that at some point. But God is in this place. The word, when it's proclaimed supernaturally in the Spirit, is at work through words which are understood, brings conviction, calls a person to account, and seems as if he's the only one there, and he repents and believes. Tongues don't do that. Tongues make men conclude you're crazy. Prophecy brings them to their knees and makes them conclude that God is in this place. So Paul says, which one's better? Which one's better? That which edifies, that which saves, that which you can understand with your mind. Well, next week, uh, Lord willing, um, we will get close to finishing this chapter. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, gathering us here tonight. Lord, it's a blessing for us to be able to be here, to hear your word. And we pray that your word would accomplish its purposes in, in our lives. And uh, we commit ourselves to you. Lord, we pray that um, as this week unfolds, that, um, that we would be able to, at least in some measure, uh, meet this coming Lord's Day. And uh, Lord, if not, we look to you, we trust in you, and uh, our hope is in you. In Jesus' name, amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.